Acts chapter 5, you guys crack me up. <laughs> As we make our way through the scriptures on Sunday night, and actually uh, we stopped at verse 32 of the previous chapter in chapter 4 because it um, established a context really for heading into chapter 5. As we've gone uh, thus far into the book of Acts, this um, beautiful treatise on Jesus' continued work through the church by the Holy Spirit in the world following his uh, ascension. Uh, the importance of the baptism with the Holy Spirit has been emphasized. There is no book of Acts apart from the Holy Spirit. In the last couple of chapters, the importance of boldness in the Christian life, boldness to preach the gospel, even in a a favorable environment requires a boldness. And then, as we saw last time, the necessity of boldness by the Holy Spirit, not something we can work up, but to ask for uh, a boldness to be faithful to God's word and his call on our lives and faithful in presenting the gospel even in uh, environments of great intimidation and, and opposition. And we come tonight to another uh, lesson that's important as God drives home uh, the importance of purity in his church and in the early church. Now, the multitude of those who, were, who believed were of one heart and one mind, so many people getting saved at this point in Jerusalem, and neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, materially speaking, but they had all things in common. So we see this um, love that the early church had for one another. It was a concern for uh, fellow Christians on all levels, including a material level in people's lives. As you might imagine, people getting saved um, in an environment, the city of Jerusalem, in which the two great religious uh, sects and institutions were Phariseeism and uh, Sadduceeism and their opposition to Jesus from two different uh, poles was very, very strong. So here you now become a Christian and perhaps cast out of the family, cast out of your job, all kinds of things that can produce physical and material need in, in your life as a result of just simply becoming a Christian. And, uh, and so those that uh, had material things and they saw this need going on in their, among their fellow brethren, uh, they would take and uh, sell uh, uh, things that they had, maybe some land as we'll see in a moment, other things in order to then supply for the food and the shelter and the clothing of, of their fellow uh, believers. It is important as we see this, this same kind of thing a second time in the book of Acts to recognize and, and to see the fallacy of what some people think that the Bible teaches in this regard, communism. Uh, communism is a forced redistribution of wealth. Uh, that is, there is no voluntary aspect to it at all. And uh, the, the, uh, the uh, redistribution of wealth ends up not being well redistributed. Uh, that's the way you can say it. Uh, because of the corruption of man, the people that are in the power have the power related to that redistribution end up having a way of lining their pockets. We have the same problem in our country, but it's a little a uh, little more accountability in that regard. What is happening here is entirely voluntary. 
Uh, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not even a command of God. No, God did not command them now, sell what you have that you have in excess in order to feed and to, to clothe and so forth, uh, others that have been hit hard by becoming uh, a Christian. Everyone, nothing organized about it, not commanded by God. It was voluntary people wanting to do this out of their love for God and their love for, um, for the people. And when, when that is kept in a uh, when it is a voluntary thing between an individual and God, then now you're not going to have any corruption. Now you're not going to have any abuse uh, uh, of that. Potentially we'll see some abuse here, but not in terms of setting up a system that can then be manipulated by people at the top. And so this beautiful expression of love with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the miracles that were going on in the early church. These were not miracles just for God to say, look what I can do and you can't do, uh, or to show off. These miracles were uh, uh, testimonies to God's testimony to the fact, a historical fact of Jesus's resurrection uh, from uh, the dead, and great grace was upon uh, all of them, and uh, nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all those who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. They laid them at the apostles' feet, again voluntary, wasn't something the apostles said, now this is what I want you to do, like some uh, kind of a potentates or dictators. Uh, this was what uh, the people did, and then the apostles distributed uh, to each as anyone had need. And Joses, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement. So we, Barnabas is a very well-known character in the Bible, and if we are around the Bible for any length of time, we come to realize what we're told here, and that is his name means son of encouragement or son of consolation. But that was not his birth name. Uh, his birth name was Josie. So now you know that if you're ever on double jeopardy and you hit that question and uh, you, you understand that. It's an interesting thing. Um, the, our, our birth name, the first name that we're given, uh, we really have no say in that at all. Um, that's just given to us. Uh, we find out about it as we're able to understand it, and then it, it marks our lives for the rest of our lives. It's another thing when uh, other people, and here specifically Christians, uh, look at our lives and then given a chance to rename us, do so. You, you wonder what might happen if... Uh, if every one of us in this room and we kind of put panels off on everything and did kind of a poll and said, uh, how would you rename so-and-so? We might be terrified uh, at the results of that. But they looked at uh, Joseph here and they renamed him Barnabas because they said uh, everywhere he goes, every contact he has with these Christians, he's an encourager. Uh, he's, a, he's a son of consolation within this early church. And so they renamed him uh, Barnabas. And he was a Levite. He was of the priestly tribe of the country of uh, Cyprus. And he had a piece of land. He sold it. 
And then he brought the money, as people were doing, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And so all of that kind of uh, sets the stage for what happens in chapter 5. And in the first uh, word in chapter 5 tells us a major change is occurring because it begins with the word, but. And the idea is now in contrast to the simplicity and the beauty of this expression of love by the Holy Spirit, now here's another dynamic that entered into uh, this scene. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, they sold a possession. Ananias means God is gracious in the Hebrew, so he's Jewish. Uh, Sapphira is Aramaic for uh, beautiful. Uh, They sold a piece of land, uh, uh, we're told in verse 1, and then he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. It it does speak to us in just a, a small way about the importance of being a godly influence even within a marriage. Um, If either of them had stood up to the other one and said, this is not right in God's eyes, and we have no business doing this, and I will play no part in it, it might have all stopped. Uh, But they're both in in one agreement to sell this piece uh, of land and... uh, And then they brought a certain part of the proceeds from the money and they present it to Peter, giving the appearance that they were presenting all of the money. And and that's the issue that that, uh, is occurred here as it's laid at at Peter's uh, feet. And so I don't think it's inconceivable that um, as uh, Ananias and Sapphira are watching this go on maybe the day before, maybe on the same day they watched Barnabas take and do the same thing, uh, notice the, um, the, uh, the impact that that might have had upon people watching this pure act of generosity, and they thought, well, we want people to think that highly of us, um, but we don't want to make the sacrifice that's required for that. And so they gave the appearance of presenting all of the money, but they did not. Now, I've heard many sermons on, uh, out of this passage, and you want to whoop a congregation, this is a passage for whooping them. Uh, if you want to be in a, a capital-raising uh, mode of raising money and, and, uh, and, and really rake people over the coals in terms of holding back from God, that's not what's going on here at all. It preaches great, uh, but that's not what is, is happening here uh, at, at all. What is happening here, and Peter's going to bring it out in a moment, is hypocrisy. Uh, they lie and uh, not in their words. Ananias, as we'll see in a moment, he never lies to Peter, but he lies in his life and uh, in making the appearance of being one thing and then uh, uh, something else entirely uh, different privately. One thing out in public, another thing entirely privately. 
And so he takes, and Ananias, his wife is not present with him, he lays the money at the apostles' feet, giving this appearance uh, of, of, of having left all. And Peter, uh, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Ooh. That's not what Barnabas heard. I mean, there's no way he's expecting this. There is no way he's expecting this. Remember, only Ananias and Sapphira are aware of the plot. So how in the world does Peter know the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation? In the early church, same gifts operate today. Clearly, he receives a word of knowledge. A word of knowledge is a fact that God reveals to us that we could never otherwise know naturally. A word of wisdom, certainly discerning of spirits. And uh, there isn't a church in the whole world that doesn't need uh, the gift of discerning of spirits in operation uh, in their leadership, understanding which of the three spirits is at work here. Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it the demonic realm? Or is it the human spirit? And Peter understands immediately through discerning of spirits that this is uh, something that is of the flesh and it's demonic. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? This is interesting because now we see a change in Satan's tactics at this point in uh, the book of Acts. So far it has just been a frontal assault upon uh, the early church. They preach the gospel. Uh, these Jewish religious leaders come against them. They incarcerate them. They persecute them. They threaten them. And here at this point now, uh, uh, Satan realizes, I'm not getting anywhere with this. All I'm driving them to do is to pray more and ask for greater miracles and greater signs and wonders as a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think I'm going to have to change uh, my methodology here. And so he does. And so now instead of opposing uh, the church uh, outwardly, he now kind of joins the church in this um, act. And so uh, Satan was behind this. Uh, this uh, hypocrisy is described as a lie, uh, lying to the Holy Spirit, and you've kept back part of the price of the lamb for yourself. Ananias has to be completely shocked at um, the, uh, the detail with which the Apostle Peter uh, understands what it is happening. While it remained, was it not your own? Wasn't it your land to begin with? Did anybody ask you to sell your land? Did anybody tell you to give it to the church? Uh, and, and then when you sold it, the money that you got for that, wasn't that completely under your control? You, didn't have, you could have given a penny not, uh, or given all of it or something in between. Uh, you were free to do whatever you wanted with it. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men but unto God. Again, the appearance of giving all but uh, only giving a portion. And Peter said, you never had to do any of it. There was no, no need for it in, in any way. And, and there was this lying, not to men, but to uh, God. And, and it's in, a beautiful passage related to the deity of the Holy Spirit. You see in verse 3, 
Uh, Peter says, uh, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then in the end of verse 4, you have not lied to men, but to God. And so this uh, interchange in, in the way that Paul, uh, Peter rather, sees the Holy Spirit accurately, of course, biblically, uh, that the Holy Spirit uh, is God. He's the third person of the Godhead. So what we have here and the sin that we have here is the sin of hypocrisy that God judges very, very strongly. Sometimes people say, man, I wish, I wish we were more like the early church. Uh, the next verse, he dies. I mean, if God smote everybody uh, that uh, engaged in hypocrisy, then uh, who knows what, what might happen on things. It is interesting to notice in the Bible that very often when God is doing something brand new, he, he does something strong to emphasize his holiness, to emphasize that he is not to be treated in this way by his people in order to make that point at the big, right at the outset. Remember when the children of Israel under Joshua be, uh, began their conquest of the uh, land of Canaan, the promised land. And they came to the city of Jericho and Achan keeps the garment and the gold to himself and then a great judgment comes upon him and upon uh, his family. And because all of what uh, Jericho was to be given to the Lord as the fruit, first fruits of the, the, the conquest of the land. Uh, later on, when David is able now, he's set the tabernacle up, he's now king, the tabernacle in the city of Jerusalem, and he uh, wants the, the Ark of the Covenant to be brought into Jerusalem and to be brought inside of the tabernacle. And you remember that uh, they put it on a cart, which it, the priests were to carry it by hand and through staves. There was a whole thing in the law about it. They decide, let's throw it on a cart. And, uh, and the religious leaders didn't even bother enough to look into the law to see how this is supposed to happen. And David trusts him to know what they're doing here. He's not a priest. He's a prophet and a king, but he was not a priest. And Uzzah they, they hits a dip in the road. The ark starts to tip like it's going to fill over, fall over. He puts his hand out and he steadies it. God smites him right on, on the spot. Uzzah, any... Better or worse than any of us? No. But he's driving home that point of an, uh, our attitude toward God and what is acceptable and what is unacceptable and whether this relationship is going to be on his terms or on our terms. And so he would have these kind of places. And this is one of those places where he's driving that, uh, that home. And so... Uh, Ananias, hearing these words, verse 5, uh, and, and to think about the, that, that's the last words he ever heard. I, um, I'd like to hear something like, uh, uh, God bless you, Damien, we'll see you uh, uh, in heaven. <laughs> you have not lied to men, but to God. And Ananias, hearing these words, he fell down and he breathed his last uh, in other words, he died. So great fear came upon all those who heard these, uh, these things. And the young men, they arose, they wrapped them up, 
in some kind of a cloth. They carried him out and they buried him. The Jews both then and in the land today, they bury the dead on the same day uh, of, of, uh, of the death. And so uh, here is this, uh, this sin of uh, hypocrisy that God uh, judges. And hypocrisy, Jesus warned us against hypocrisy and he described it as the sin of the Pharisees. One presentation of themselves outwardly, and then they were something entirely different uh, in private. That gap between, and, uh, and of course, uh, the hypocrite in the ancient world, the word meant actor. And so it was the, the ability to act. And so here I am, this is what I really am over here, but I've learned in religious circles now how, what is the expectation over here in Christian circles, and I present myself as this. And there is a great gulf between what we are in private and what we are in, pul- in, in public. And God uh, uh, speaks here in this demonstration of things about what a danger that is, acting is, to what he wants in a relationship with us and what he wants the church to be. So here we are. We've worshiped the Lord in song, and so we come together. We worship the Lord. We study his word. We're communing with him in this room But we're not the only people in this room. What kind of a service would that be if it was all just us and no God? (laughs) The whole reason it's a blessing is because he's here. And we're able to ascribe worth to him and honor him and say these things that we want to say to him from our hearts and and learn his word. And And a church needs to be a place supremely. Not what did you think of the service? What do we like about the service? That's important to God in terms of the fact that it would be a spiritual uh, blessing to us. But the main thing is he's the main person attending a church service. And so what does he think about it? And God makes the point here that when I come into a church or an environment and it's all acting, there's this massive gap between what people really are and what they bring into this room, he says, it ruins it for me. Uh, now it's become a game. And, and, he, and he recognizes that of all of the areas in our life, this is the area maybe that we're the most prone to be like that. Or maybe it's just that he's got the greatest concern related to it. And of course, acting is it's a, it's a terrible way to live um, in, in terms of mentally, emotionally, physically, what it demands of us. I, I, I suppose if you could talk with any actor, uh, anybody that's in demand and they're making $20, $50 million a year or whatever, they're very, very good actors. And I don't say, well, it's just a snap. I show up, they show me my lines. I get a, it's hard work. It's really, really hard work to be an actor or an actress. And you can't be in that role 24-7. You have to come out of that role at uh, some, some point. And inevitably, in terms of someone with a Christian life that is an act that is going on, a separation that's occurring, Sooner or later, 
it gets exposed. And almost always at the world's worst uh, time. And, uh, and in God's grace, it does get exposed. And so we look at this and say, man, I mean, the, the, church, is a, the church is a grace environment. It is a redemptive environment. God does not expect us to be perfect when we come to church. But active, uh, determined life of hypocrisy, that's something uh, different. And that's what, he's, uh, that's what he doesn't want to have happen uh, here. So it really searches our hearts uh, related to that. I don't think it's a bad idea. Um, you think, well, if, if God you know, did that uh, today, or he just picked out a church in Modesto and did it, uh, you know, a different church every Sunday, <laughs> like uh, playing Russian roulette in terms of the church that a, a person might go to. But it, um, it would do us no harm before coming to a worship service and not coming or not coming on the basis of perfection. Of course, none of us will be perfect at all. But to ask ourselves before I go to church, has any element of hypocrisy entered into my life? Uh, What portion of my Christian life is now no longer real, but it's an act? And then that would at least be on a weekly basis where I would be checking my heart. I'd be checking my heart with the Holy Spirit related to the reality of my relationship with God. And it wouldn't do us any harm at all to do that so that this terrible sin of hypocrisy doesn't get entrenched not only in a church, but entrenched in an individual uh, life. And so uh, Peter here speaks these words, and out goes uh, Ananias. And, And about three hours later... When his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, can you imagine the tension in that room? Um, there's probably maybe a little bit of tittering, you know, with the voices and everything and all. And then she may even uh, 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 look at it as, oh boy, they heard about our offering. <laughs> well, it was nothing. It was really nothing, you know. It, it, it all in kind of a praise. And she has no idea what has happened to her husband at this point and, and the difficulty that she's in. And so she came in not knowing what had happened to Ananias. And Peter answered her and said, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. He gives her a chance to come clean. Why would Peter ask whether she gave the full amount and have a suspicion about it, except that knowing that they didn't give the full amount, it would be a prod to being honest related to the situation, to know, this guy's onto something, I better come clean. And he said, you just dig in, and it's like the kid with Oreos all across their face, and they're asked whether they got into the cookie jar, and all the way to uh, the spanking. Uh, they deny it. And, and so she, she says, no, Ananias, he lied, never said a word. She lies in her actions, and then she lies in her words when she's confronted. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit uh, of the Lord? 
uh, and uh, look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. It's only at that moment that the news is broken to her that her husband is dead as a result of this. And, and then immediately she fell down at his feet and she breathed her uh, last. The young men came in and they found her dead and carrying her out, they buried her by her husband. And then that next word in verse 11, so as a result, a great fear came upon all the church and upon all who uh, heard these uh, things. And so uh, the, uh, this event that would, of course, shock any Christian or any congregation in terms of, wow, this is a serious business. It doesn't mean that Ananias and Sapphira were not Christians. I mean, I fully anticipate on seeing them uh, in heaven. But God was determined to express his dislike for uh, hypocrisy and, and uh, in making them an example. So we say, well, why doesn't he do that uh, today uh, in, in the body of Christ around the world? And uh, what he expects is for us to be mature enough to realize that in order to this, make this point, he has already made it by trotting out Ananias and Sapphira on the pages of Scripture to drive home the point to our own hearts. He doesn't have to do it every service, but that, but that it's something that would impact us as we would, um, as we would uh, read this uh, account um, in, in the Scriptures. So the importance of just um, allowing, and again, in the privacy of our own heart. I, I really dislike altar calls. Now listen, if you're a hypocrite, would you just come up here right now before you? And I, I don't. But just in the privacy of our own heart to ask, is there a gap, any part of my Christian life that is an act, where I'm one thing around God's people and another thing somewhere else, and I've grown comfortable with that gap, and to realize it's a dangerous business, and to, for all of us to take that, where, however it might exist, and... Uh, and to uh, sort that out and to make that right uh, with, uh, with the Lord and uh, recognizing the danger that it represents to, um, to our lives, but to the purity of the body of Christ uh, as a whole. And that, that's the important kind of other-centeredness or the other-centered view of hypocrisy in my own life. It doesn't just affect me. It affects other people. It affects the other people that attend the church and God's ability to pour out all of the blessings that he wants upon a church and upon the Christians that attend there. And, and so the, the, the point is powerfully made. And then as a result of this purification, you might remember that um, in uh, earlier, in uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, there was the church uh, added, uh, God added to the church daily such as should be saved. Uh, and then we're going to see uh, shortly God um, multiplied uh, people getting saved. He goes from uh, addition to multiplication in terms of the number of people getting saved. But to notice that there is a very strategic subtraction between the two. 
And sometimes it is only a subtraction if it is this kind of subtraction that allows him to then multiply and bless a church in the way that he wants to in soul saved, which is the ultimate uh, desire for our hearts. And so through the hands of the uh, apostles on the other side of this, many signs and wonders were done among the people. It freed God to um, pour out his favor in this way. And they were, with all, with, uh, they were all with one accord um, in Solomon's uh, porch. And so uh, God gave even greater demonstrations of, God, uh, of his power through the signs and wonders, uh, this purifying uh, work of uh, dealing with them. It, it also protected the unity uh, of the body. All of us can unify around a church or around things that are uh, pure, Problems always occur within a church or among God's people when there's two different views of, uh, of what the Christian life is supposed to be. And one has a, a view where hypocrisy is okay. Another has a view where, no, this is supposed to be, uh, this is supposed to be a holy place and something that we take uh, seriously. Those that want to, uh, are serious about uh, walking with the Lord and and having him conform our, our lives into the image of Christ and, and those who uh, are, are not. One or the other is going to prevail. And, and here he makes sure that, uh, that the first one prevails and it produced a unity. They were unified by this, this holiness. And yet none of the rest uh, dared join them. And so this, uh, this, the rest that keeps their distance now from the church in Jerusalem, it appears to be those who... Uh, might have been tempted to join the church because of all of the excitement, the signs, the wonders, the miracles that were going on, and, uh, uh, but not really interested in uh, committing their life to the Lord, uh, living for God, uh, putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, they wanted a, a religious experience, but they didn't want what Christianity is about, and that group kept their distance as a result, and uh, that's never a, a, a bad thing while they're uh, settling the issue of, of Jesus's, uh, the place of Jesus uh, in their uh, life. And so it caused this uh, kind of person, the, uh, the hypocrite and the, uh, and the person that's playing games with religion to keep uh, their, different, uh, their distance. And then he, he goes on to say, uh, uh, but, uh, but the people uh, esteemed them very, very uh, highly. And this is speaking about the unsaved in Jerusalem. They esteemed the church very highly as a result of what had happened. And they recognized that it must mean something to be a Christian. And they respected that. And so remember the Jews, and we live in a world that is like this. But for the Jews, with the Sadducees and the Pharisees going on, there was no reality at all. It was all just a big power, money-making operation. And now they see God is real. God judges this nonsense that's all we've ever seen from the religious establishment our entire lives. This is something we respect. And they did, uh, did respect it. Sometimes, you know, today, of course, it, 
uh, there's this, this opinion that somehow uh, sinners, they're not looking for uh, a religion that makes any demands of them and it's got to be as easy as possible and you hide all of the strong demands of Christianity in a person's life from them until you've got them hooked or dependent in some kind of a way and all of these shenanigans that go on in our minds. People are looking for reality. By the time we reach a place in our life where we're willing to turn the control of our life over to uh, some God, someone other than ourselves, uh, and then trust this God with our eternity, nobody's going to look at a religious game and say, yeah, that's worth investing in. They're going to look for reality, and they're going to look for this kind of seriousness. Uh, about the things uh, of of the Lord. And so this uh, removal of the hypocrisy uh, was so important in that, uh, that happening. You would think people would, uh, the unsaved would run from a church like that. Uh, amazingly enough, uh, just the opposite happened. And purity is a tremendous witness to the world and our lives as a church to um, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ um, from uh, the dead. And anytime you have a church where you have a, a, a congregation of Christians whose lives are really changed, it's not a game, you're going to attract sinners when they're finally wanting uh, to get saved. Uh, and uh, because... It, 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 wherever, whatever place lives are being changed, uh, people that need a changed life are going to make a beeline there and not to any other, uh, other place. And so this beautiful, beautiful impact of purity, it's kind of counterintuitive. You would think that uh, two people dead in a, in a day in that church, that uh, non-Christians would uh, run from it. And uh, believers were increasingly added to the Lord. And then here it is, multitudes of both men and women. So that they brought the sick out onto the streets, laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. And also a multitude gathered from uh, the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, they brought their sick uh, people and uh, those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so now we see, even before God begins, as he begins uh, this work in Jerusalem uh, among the Jews, then there's going to be later in the book of Acts the outreach to uh, the Gentiles and Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. But now you already see through what's happening here that uh, people in Jerusalem are hearing about this and they're going even outside of the city, bringing people in to have uh, contact with this kind of reality and this kind of power. And then the high priest, in response to all of that, said, praise God, we've never had anything like this in the history uh, of the Jewish religion. It must mean that the Messiah has come uh, into human history. No, the high priest, remember, he is a Sadducee. Uh, he, he's uh, uh, um, 
and uh, all of those who were with him, these were the leaders of, of the Sanhedrin, uh, 71 most powerful Jewish religious leaders among the Jews in the whole world, and, uh, and they were all filled with indignation. So the first persecution against the church here, we see it continue here now into this chapter, is religious establishment. It's not Rome. It's not Rome. And whenever you have this kind of indignation born out of jealousy, as we're going to see, uh, that's going to happen. And when God does a move like this, your first enemy will always become religion, the threat that it is to religion. People being born again, a revival breaking out in a community or in a nation, that's no threat. Uh, typically, it's not an initial threat, at least, to the government. The, the, because they look at it and they say, what is that to us? We don't claim to believe in God. We aren't a church. We aren't any of that. Who cares? Uh, but other religious people who do not have that dynamic or that power or the witness of the Holy Spirit to what they're doing, they are immediately threatened, and they recognize it. This is going to be the end of our offerings. This is going to be the end of our power, the Sadducees have to be uh, thinking here. And so they're uh, filled with um, indignation because people are being uh, freed and they're being healed and they're being saved and delivered of, of their demons. Jealousy is one of the most dangerous things in our Christian ministry. Uh, if you ever want to do a, a study on your own, if you, if you struggle with that, well, how come God's using, and what about me? Uh, do a study of Saul, the first king in Israel, and watch how jealousy took him down. But jealousy is dangerous in our lives, and, and it is well worth the effort, of course, uh, to recognize it, to fight against it, to not come under the influence of it, but they have no kind of restraint related to it uh, at, at all. They, uh, c they consider it to be a... Um, probably a virtue that they're protecting God's reputation here against this, uh, these Christians. And so in their indignation, they laid hands on the apostles. Again, they arrested them. They put them into the common prison to hold them overnight to then uh, be brought to trial. Once again, they hadn't, as if the first sermon that Peter preached to them wasn't clear enough, they're going to get another one. You gotta love these guys. And you've got to love the apostles and the Holy Spirit who won't give up on them. And so they put him in prison, and at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now people, uh, people uh, speculate about whether God has a sense of humor. Well, I look at you and me, and I, I still can't come to a a complete conclusion related to it. But it is interesting that in delivering the apostles from their incarceration, he uses an angel. And the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. And so here he is just any way he can get through to them 
to realize the folly of what it is that they're doing and the, the theological positions even that they held. And the angel come and said to them, go stand in the temple, go back to where you got in trouble and arrested and speak to the people all the words of this life. And those two words, this life, that's worth circling, at least in our minds, maybe even in our Bibles. And here you have the angel talking about the Christian Christianity as being this life. It's not merely a belief in certain theological things, though it is definitely that. It is a life. And so go preach that uh, to all of the people. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and they taught. But the high priests and those who came, uh, they called the council together and with all of the elders of the children of Israel, here you have the Sanhedrin all come together and uh, they all had their coffee and, 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 uh, and all. And then they sent to the prison to have the apostles brought to them. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and they reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely. The door was just as it always was. And the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what uh, the outcome would be. They, they thought to themselves, this must be God. What are we doing resisting a God like this? Are we crazy? Let's repent and believe in Christ. That's not what they do uh, at, at all. But they're, they're fighting that. They realize they are uh, up against a, a living God and what they're doing here. And so uh, one came and told them, saying, look, the men whom you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence. Uh, and uh, the only reason they didn't use violence is they feared the people lest they should be stoned. Obviously, the apostles are very popular in Jerusalem at this point. Having all of these people saved, how many people, miracles done, how many demons cast out uh, and all. Uh, they knew this is not a time to make uh, the multitude, uh, force the multitude to choose between us and the apostles. It would have been a very easy decision and they recognized that. And when they had uh, brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them saying, uh, and with a straight face, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? What about all the miracles? What about all the people saved? What about all the people that have been delivered from the clutch uh, of, of the devil? None of this enters into the thinking at all. So we gave you a command. We're the religious leaders, and you disobeyed uh, the command. Now, this is an incredible ability to compartmentalize in their minds how they can focus so narrowly upon one thing and disregard everything else. And, and, uh, and, and this is uh, uh, what their concern is, is not even giving a, a nod to the miraculous that's happening within the city, uh, that, that the entire city has been turned upside down related to it. 
uh, all they're going to focus on is, we told you not to do this, uh, to teach in this uh, name, and look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, the doctrine being the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and salvation through faith in him, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. So they refer to Jesus as, uh, and uh, to teach in this name, and then they refer to him as this man. He can't even get himself to say Jesus' name. I mean, that's the level of, of animosity toward uh, Jesus, all of it unjustified. And, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us to make us responsible for uh, the death uh, of Jesus on the cross. And of course, all of us are uh, responsible for that, that uh, blood that was shed and that it was required for the forgiveness of all of our sins. But Peter and the other apostles answered. So Peter speaks on behalf of all of them and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So he comes back to this as we saw in the uh, last time in the chapter. He said, listen, you're asking us to do one thing. God has called us to do something else scripturally, and we're going to obey God and not obey uh, men. And when we come face to face with situations that occur in life where whoever it is uh, demands that we do something contrary to the scriptures, that's where we put our foot down in that area and say, you're forcing me to choose between God and you, and I, and I am going to obey God in this, uh, this situation. And so this kind of thing, of course, is, it, it appears to be coming even to our country, given even with all of our religious uh, freedoms here. Um, COVID certainly uh, made the political powers that be in our country uh, flex muscles they've never flexed before, and they tend not uh, to keep flexing those muscles once they've been able to do that in terms of, uh, of their edicts and people's uh, rights even within, uh, within the government. And so they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Wow. So he gets even stronger now in this sermon than Peter was in the previous sermon. And he was very, very strong in the previous sermon. So now um, you want to hear a, a second sermon? You want to hear um, whether we've changed our mind in the meantime or the message has changed at all? Uh, no, it hasn't. You are responsible. You as the Sadducees, you are the Jewish religious leaders. He's not talking to the common man here. The Jewish religious leaders had only months before been responsible for the crucifixion uh, of, uh, of Jesus. And all of these miracles are a testimony of Jesus' resurrection and God the Father's raising him from, uh, from the dead. And him God has exalted to his right hand. Not only has Jesus been raised from the dead, but he has ascended into heaven to be prince and savior uh, for the purpose of giving repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And that's what's being offered in Jesus. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So in the law of Moses... 
Every fact had to be confirmed on the basis of two, at least two witnesses. So they say, you need witnesses for this. There's the witness of Scripture. We are eyewitnesses of his death, burial, and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit, through all of this supernatural, is bearing his witness to it uh, as well. This is, uh, it's like uh, a gentleman of the Sanhedrin. Uh, You are not up against us. You are up against God. And you are up against His Holy Spirit and what it is that you are uh, doing here. Still always with the intent to get get them to break, to get them to see uh, the only conclusion they can come to related to this, to to humble themselves. And they refuse to do that. And, uh, And so... Uh, we're told that when they heard this, they were furious and plotted uh, to kill them. And that's uh, interesting. That word furious, it means literally to be sawn through. The, what Peter preached to them here, it was like somebody took a saw and went right to their heart uh, with it. And their intent was now to kill them. We're going to kill them. I don't care what the consequences are. We're going to kill him. Very rational, very religious response uh, to truth. But again, you touch power and you touch money in an institution that is no longer about God. And uh, uh, you think that uh, the, the various mobs around the world can play hardball. Uh, they can do the same. And then a cooler head prevails here, one in the council stood up. This gentleman is a Pharisee uh, by the name of uh, Gamaliel, and we recognize his name as um, he was a famous teacher and rabbi among the Jews in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, uh, Saul of Tarsus, before he became the Apostle Paul, he sat under Gamaliel in his uh, being taught uh, the scriptures, and uh, so very, very highly esteemed and uh, in respect of all of the people, and uh, he commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. So he starts to calm things down a little bit, and he said to the men of Israel, uh, take heed to yourself uh, what you intend to do regarding these men. You better stop and think about what you're doing here. And uh, all, we, all you have to do is you look around the world and to see um, how... Uh, crazy people can get under religious influence. I mean, they'll cut your head off. And, and so this is really a, a, a very volatile situation. And so he said, let's be careful about and think twice about what, you got, what you're planning to do here. For some time ago, uh, Thudius rose up claiming to be somebody. Uh, that's a dead giveaway you don't follow, uh, <laughs> that guy. Hey, I'm somebody. Follow me. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And after this, Judas of Galilee, he rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. These guys rose up. They did their thing. It came to nothing. 
And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found uh, to fight against God. So, in terms of Gamaliel, uh, the light is dawning on him a little bit. Uh, He's not in the same place that these others are. He sees the implications of Uh, of these miracles, the implications of the Scriptures, the implications of of Peter's preaching here. He said, you better slow down and you better think. Give it room. Most of these things, when they happen like this, they peter out. And so, let's see what happens here. When he says in verse 39, but if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you uh, uh, even be found to fight against God. That is absolutely true. Anything that God is behind, no human being or group of human beings are going to overthrow that. But what he says here in verse 38, when he says, uh, I, I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. That's not true. In an ultimate sense, it's true, but it's not true. You have a lot of things that claim uh, to be, have an origin in God that have not petered out quickly in human history. Uh, you have things that ha- have a, a, a demonic source behind them, and, uh, and they're around for generations. Uh, you look at Islam today, since the 6th century, 600s uh, going on, that was no flash in the pan, but it's not of God. You look at Mormonism today. You look at Jehovah Witnesses and that, uh, that uh, group today. Uh, they have had amazing capacity for longevity and endurance. And yet, uh, they haven't gone by the wayside. And, and so, uh, 39 is always true. Verse 38 is not uh, always true. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them. So now they give them a warning. Now they're going to give them a a beating on top of it. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. And so they departed from the presence of the council and said, we are getting in really hot water. We better lay low and keep cool about this thing, or we're going to be in worse trouble. That's not what happened. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. They counted that persecution to be a privilege. To be persecuted, not just for truth, but to be persecuted for the truth about the most important person in the world, and that is God Himself and and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the truth about the most important thing in life, and that is salvation. Salvation, and if, and if this is the treatment that we must endure to believe the truth and to carry the truth, we will rejoice in it. And so how in the world do you stop people like that? Well, you don't, and they didn't. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so we stop there.
tonight and we'll look to pick up chapter six um, uh, next week. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time in your word and as we see how important purity is to you and the danger that hypocrisy represents to any local church and it represents in our own lives and to whatever degree that conversation needs to continue in any of our lives on into this evening, we pray that you would keep that conversation going um, until what we are here is what we are at home and what we are at home is what we are uh, here, Lord. We thank you for um, bringing out how blind people can be and most especially religious people to what is so obvious to everyone else concerning you, your son, your confirming in the scriptures and sign in wonders the changed lives to the truth of his resurrection. And Lord, we thank you even as we concluded. We are again so wonderful to say that we are happy to be in the truth and there is no place else that we can go but to be in that truth, Lord. And we count it a privilege to be able to suffer for your truth when it happens in our lives, knowing that your truth is the truth and that it will ultimately prevail over all of the earth. Thank you for your truth, the privilege of knowing it and obeying it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.